Hi everyone, welcome back to Daily Gospel Exegesis. As always, our goal is to help you understand the text from a Catholic, academic, rigorous perspective, and we do a verse-by-verse exegesis of the Gospel text from today's Mass. We have a longer text today, so let's get straight into it. Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 25. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there lived a priest called Zechariah, who belonged to the Abijah section of the priesthood. And he had a wife, Elizabeth by name, who was a descendant of Aaron. Both were worthy in the sight of God, and scrupulously observed all the commandments and observances of the Lord. But they were childless. Elizabeth was barren, and they were both getting on in years. Now it was the turn of Zechariah's section to serve, and he was exercising his priestly office before God, when it fell to him by lot, as the ritual custom was, to enter the Lord's sanctuary and burn incense there. And at the hour of incense, the whole congregation was outside praying. Then there appeared to him the angel of the Lord, standing on the right of the altar of incense. The sight disturbed Zechariah, and he was overcome with fear. But the angel said to him, Zechariah, do not be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth is to bear you a son, and you must name him John. He will be your joy and delight, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He must drink no wine, no strong drink. Even from his mother's womb, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, and he will bring back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. With the spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before him to turn the hearts of fathers towards their children, and the disobedient back to the wisdom that the virtuous have, preparing for the Lord a people fit for him. Zechariah said to the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is getting on in years. The angel replied, I am Gabriel, who stands in God's presence, and I have been sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. Listen, since you have not believed my words, which will come true at their appointed time, you will be silenced and have no power of speech until this has happened. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and were surprised that he stayed in the sanctuary for so long. When he came out, he could not speak to them, and they realized that he had received a vision in the sanctuary. But he could only make signs to them and remained dumb. When his time of service came to an end, he returned home. Sometime later, his wife Elizabeth conceived and for five months she kept to herself. The Lord has done this for me, she said. Now that it has pleased him to take away the humiliation, I suffered among men. So that's our long text today. Let's jump straight into it. What's the context? Well, we're right at the start of Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 1, verse 5. So just prior to this, in verses 1 to 4, Luke has explained to his audience why he's writing. Now he begins his infancy narrative, which stretches across chapters 1 and 2, basically. And these chapters, scholars have pointed out, are written in quite a different way compared to the rest of his gospel. Chapters 1 and 2 of Luke 
use a different stylistic way of writing. It seems that Luke has deliberately sat down and written chapter 1 and 2 in a different kind of style than the rest of his gospel. Why has he done that? Well, it appears that the style he chooses here when writing chapter 1 and 2 is he's deliberately setting it up so it's similar to the style of the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. And this, the explanation that most scholars give as to why he does that goes something like this. For Luke, the Old Testament is an unfinished book which has not yet been fulfilled. But the concluding notes of the Old Testament resonate with some expectation for the people, but with unfulfilled promises. So Luke, when he's writing chapter 1 and 2, he deliberately weaves in numerous allusions to the Old Testament, and he's implying, as he tells chapters 1 and 2, he's suggesting to his readers that the story he's telling is a continuation of the Old Testament. In fact, it's the fulfillment, the climax of everything the Jews have been waiting for in their unfulfilled Old Testament. So he's really writing this in a way that's going to make his readers think about the Old Testament and to clearly point out the way it's being fulfilled. He does this differently from Matthew, though, whereas Matthew is much more overt. Matthew says, as he's going, Matthew says, here's the Old Testament prophecy, and he quotes it, and then he clearly tells his readers, this is being fulfilled. Luke doesn't do that. He doesn't typically quote a whole lot from the Old Testament. He more just weaves in themes and weaves in allusions to the Old Testament and hopes that his audience will pick up on the fulfillment. So let's start at verse 5. It says, In the days of King Herod of Judea. So who's Herod? This would be Herod the Great. He was the king over Israel in the time period when Jesus was born. He reigned approximately 37 BC up till about 2 BC, and he's kind of like a vassal king. The Romans are really the ones in power, but they allowed King Herod to rule over this part of Israel. Luke has lots of dates in this early part of his gospel. Luke is deliberately trying to be a good historian here. In fact, some people who've looked at the gospel of Luke have concluded that he's one of the best historians ever in history. He's very accurate and he's very clear in terms of the way he references dates and people. Luke is writing to Gentiles mostly, so he's probably deliberately situating his narrative in the context of world history, of events that people all over the known world would understand. So Luke is very clear in these first couple of chapters of when each event happens, who's in power, where it happens, and those sorts of things. And he says, in the days of King Herod of Judea, there lived a priest. Now, in the days of Jesus, there were many priests, not priests in the Christian or the Catholic context, priests in the Jewish context. These are Aaronic priests, and their job was to work in the temple and to offer sacrifices. And there's a priest here that we're introduced to called Zechariah, or that can be translated Zacharias. And that name basically means Yahweh has remembered. So Zechariah means Yahweh has remembered. So there's a priest in this time period called Zechariah. And he belongs to the Abijah section of the priesthood. What does this mean to say that he's from the Abijah section of the priesthood? The Levitical priesthood, so that would include all men who are descended from Aaron, it was divided up into 24 divisions of priests. So from the total pool of priests that exist at this time, they're divided into 24 groups or divisions. And we can see this clearly in 1 Chronicles chapter 24, if you look at that. It actually tells you the 24 divisions. Each of the 24 divisions served at the temple two different weeks each year. So if you were in 
Division 7, for example, you would serve uh, in one week early in the year and then in another week later in the year. So they served twice a year. This practice was continuing in Jesus' time. For any man who was descended from Aaron, they were part of the priesthood and they would be rostered on uh, depending on what division they're in. And it says here that Zechariah is part of the Abijah section, which was the eighth group. Now, from this, some people have tried to determine the date that all this happened. And particularly, they want to work out what's the date of Jesus' birthday. They figure something like this. They figure that if we know that Zechariah serves, he's in the Abijah section, we know the approximate dates that the Abijah section would have been serving in the uh, in the temple in this particular year. And given that while he's a priest there, he, he learns that his wife is going to be pregnant. And this is how some people reason. They say, well, based on that, we can work out the date that Elizabeth conceived. From that, we can work out the date that John the Baptist was born. And then we factor in some other dates and we can work out exactly when Jesus himself was born. Some people have tried to do that based purely on the fact that we know that uh, Zechariah is part of the Abijah section of the priesthood. And it's true that this is an actual date. The Luke is trying to give us dates here. The problem is, though, we can't, from this, we still can't work out exactly when Elizabeth conceived, because as you'll see later in the text, it says that some time passed between the Annunciation by the angel to Zechariah and the conception of John the Baptist. We don't know how much time passed, so it's not the best way of working out the birth date of Jesus. So Luke here says that Zechariah had a wife, Elizabeth by name, who was a descendant of Aaron. So the word Elizabeth means my God's oath. Luke goes out of his way here to point out that Elizabeth is a descendant of Aaron. So both Zechariah and Elizabeth are descendants of Aaron. They're from the the Levitical priestly tribe. Think about it. If both of them are from the Levitical priestly tribe, well, then their son, John the Baptist, is truly a priest in the truest sense. So Luke is wanting his readers to notice that John the Baptist is a priest in a very real sense. Now, we later learn that Zechariah and Elizabeth, they live in a part of the world called the Hill Country of Judea. It doesn't give us a town name, but most scholars believe that they live in the village of Ein Karim, which has now been discovered, and it's about five miles from Jerusalem. So that would certainly be an appropriate spot for them to live, given that Zechariah works in Jerusalem. So he could just walk to Jerusalem on the days that he's working. And he can actually go to this village today of Ein Karim and go to the house that apparently they lived in. And there's some quite beautiful churches there in that part of Israel, even today, which is well worth visiting. Verse 6, both were worthy in the sight of God. A better translation there would be, both were righteous before God. This is quite profound. Luke tells us that Elizabeth and Zechariah are righteous before God, much like many of the Old Testament figures. And he goes even further. He says that they scrupulously observed all the commandments and observances of the Lord. A more literal translation here is, they walked in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. That's quite remarkable. These two people are blameless before God. These are two very holy individuals who took God and his promises seriously. They were very faithful Jews. Verse 7, but they were childless. Elizabeth was barren. And of course, in that culture, it was quite shameful for a woman to be barren. Many women in the Old Testament suffered similar, were in a similar position. If you look particularly in the early chapters of Genesis, but all through the Old Testament, there's women who are barren and God gives them children miraculously. And Luke here says they were both getting on in years. Now, we don't know exactly how old they are. 
but they're getting on in years, so it seems likely that they're past childbearing age. Perhaps they're both past the age of 50. For this reason, then, if you think about it, if they're both kind of older people and they have they give birth to John the Baptist, probably by the time John the Baptist is uh, an adult, and perhaps even by the time he's a teenager, both of his parents would have died. And that would that makes sense if we factor in that it appears John the Baptist spent a lot of his life out in the wilderness, even from a young age. So it's possible that Zechariah and Elizabeth died fairly early on, and when they did die, maybe that's when John the Baptist went out into the wilderness. Perhaps he even went to Qumran and lived with the Essenes. That's just a theory, but we need to keep in mind that these are quite elderly people, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Verse 8, Now it was the turn of Zechariah's section to serve, and he was exercising his priestly office before God. So Zechariah is on duty. He's doing his biannual duty in the temple. He's serving as a priest. It fell to him by lot, as the ritual custom was, to enter the Lord's sanctuary and burn incense there. So what's going on here? Well, among all the priests that were serving in that week, they were all assigned different tasks that were determined by casting lots. Zechariah's allocated task on this occasion is to enter the Lord's sanctuary and burn incense there. That particular task could only be done once in a priest's life. It was probably one of the top jobs you could get. So through providence, perhaps, Zechariah ends up with the job of burning incense. And this will be the crowning moment of Zechariah's ministry. He gets to burn the incense uh, in the Lord's sanctuary. So he's going into the holy place where there's an altar to burn incenses and to do sacrifices. Verse 10, At the hour of incense, the whole congregation was outside praying. So Zechariah is doing his job. He's in the holy place at the hour. It says the hour of incense here. This is also known as the hour of prayer. This was done twice daily, the hour of prayer. And there was one in the morning, one in the evening. And it was typically done at the same time as the morning and evening offerings in the temple. If you want details of how this ritual looked, you can look at Exodus chapter 29 and 30. This particular one that we're looking at here, this is probably the later one in the day. So we're probably talking about 3 p.m. here. Zechariah's in the holy place. He's uh, making a sacrifice and doing the incense. There's people outside the holy place waiting for him. So here's how it worked. The priest would go into the holy place where the altar was, and he'd offer prayer and incense, While the priest did that, the people, the faithful Jews, would pray outside the room and they would wait for the priest to return and then give them a blessing. So they're praying and waiting for Zechariah to come back out. Verse 11, there appeared to him the angel of the Lord standing on the right of the altar of incense. Now, the fact that it mentions here the right of the altar of incense, this really does suggest that Luke got this information from an eyewitness. Someone has told him, someone who was there, probably Zechariah, has told him that the angel was on the right side of the altar. Or perhaps Luke got this information from Mary. Many scholars believe that Luke conducted extensive interviews with Mary to get his information about these early chapters. Verse 12, the sight disturbed Zechariah and he was overcome with fear. Which makes sense because he's just doing his duty in the holy place and all of a sudden an angel appears and he's overcome with fear. Or more literally, fear fell upon him. This is actually a common response to the appearance of angels all throughout the Bible. Whenever an angel shows up, people are afraid. And that shows that there's probably something quite fierce about angels. There's something about their appearance that really scares people. They're not these nice fat babies floating around with wings. They're quite scary 
big, fierce creatures, it would seem. The only person who doesn't show immediate shock when an, an angel appears is Mary. Mary is uh, disturbed about what the angel says to her, but she doesn't show shock when the angel first shows up. And we'll see that later in the chapter. This is what the angel says to him. Zechariah, do not be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. So apparently Zechariah has been praying for some time that his wife would conceive. This is something he desperately wants. The angel here confirms that God has heard his prayer. And perhaps the reason his prayer is heard is because Zechariah is a righteous man. God has heard his prayer because he's righteous and he wants to grant it. Your wife Elizabeth is to bear you a son and you must name him John. Now, notice this is a command. You must name him John. The word John means the Lord is merciful, or you can translate that Yahweh has shown favor. Both of those are good translations of the name John. This phrase here, your wife Elizabeth is to bear you a son and you must name him John. This is very similar to Genesis 17:19, where God says to Abraham, your wife Sarah shall bear a son and you shall name him Isaac. So again, you hear these Old Testament echoes. God works in patterns. Verse 14, he will be your joy and delight, and many will rejoice at his birth. So the angel says that not only will you rejoice, Zechariah, but many people will rejoice when he's born. Why? Well, the angel is going to explain, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. So what does this mean to say that John will be great in the sight of the Lord? Well, it could mean lots of different things, but perhaps the best understanding of this is that God will approve of John the Baptist's actions. He will be a great servant of the Lord who will bring many people to God. For that reason, many people will rejoice when he's born. He's going to be a very holy man that will lead people to God. Then the angel adds in this interesting command to Zechariah. He must drink no wine, no strong drink. Why does the angel say this? Well, it appears to be because he expects John the Baptist, when he's born, to take a Nazarite vow. A Nazarite vow. What is that? Well, in the Old Testament, there's various figures which take this Nazarite vow. The vow itself is described in Numbers chapter 6, verse 3. People like Samson and Samuel in the Old Testament, who are both leaders of God's people, they take the Nazarite vow. And the vow included drinking no alcohol, you weren't allowed to cut your hair, and also they weren't allowed to have contact with the dead. So to take a Nazarite vow basically meant you were consecrating yourself to God in a specific way. It was an act of sacrifice and devotion to God. It was entirely optional. So uh, priests could do this if they wanted to, but they didn't have to. And also some lay people could take a Nazarite vow. So in this sense, people who chose to take the Nazarite vow a kind of forerunners of monks and nuns in the New Covenant. And they're very similar to the Essenes. If you know about the Essenes who lived out at the Dead Sea and they wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, they seem to live a very similar life to those that took the Nazarite vow. But it was entirely voluntary, except for John the Baptist. It's not. Zechariah, uh, the angel says to Zechariah, he must not drink alcohol. And the implication is that John the Baptist needs to take a Nazarite vow. He's going to be specifically dedicated to God in a very priestly way. John's whole life and his whole ministry would be a minimalist one, which includes not drinking alcohol. And the point of it, in this case, is to point people towards God. People should look at John the Baptist, see the way he lives his life differently, and that should point people towards God. 
The angel continues, even from his mother's womb, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's quite a statement. Even from his mother's womb, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was mentioned briefly in the Old Testament. It is a concept that's found in the Old Testament, and occasionally it rests on people, but it very rarely rests on individuals permanently or from or from the womb. A couple of exceptions would be Isaiah and Jeremiah. Both of those prophets are said to have the Holy Spirit in a permanent way. In fact, if you look at Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5, it says that Jeremiah is said to be consecrated by the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb. So John the Baptist is sort of following in Isaiah and Jeremiah's footsteps. He is consecrated from his mother's womb. So this is highlighting that John the Baptist is the latest and greatest prophet. He's the last in the long line of prophets getting people ready for the Messiah. And this is brought out later. Jesus himself will describe John the Baptist as the greatest prophet. If you think about it, John, Jesus, and Mary, all three of those people are sanctified by the, by the Holy Spirit before they're born. John is uh, sanctified as soon as he's in the womb, apparently. Jesus is sanctified even before he exists, you could say. And Mary is sanctified at the moment of her conception. The Holy Spirit is involved in the conception of all three of these people. Verse 16, he will bring back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. Now we know from later that John's ministry does produce a lot of good fruit and it causes many people to repent. In fact, that's the whole point of John's ministry. He's getting people ready for the Messiah. He wants them to repent to make sure they're ready for when the Messiah arrives. And then the angel says this, he will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. So John the Baptist takes up the mantle and the ministry of Elijah, and he's, there's a lot of similarities between the two. John the Baptist wears the same clothes as Elijah. He ministers in the same area. He has the same basic message as Elijah. In fact, based on the catechism, and we'll see this when we look at the catechism passage, it looks like Elijah's actual spiritual authority was literally passed on to John. We know that when Elijah finished his ministry, his authority passed to Elisha. Apparently, that same authority is now passed on to John. John is literally comes in the authority of Elijah. He's got Elijah's spiritual authority. And then the angel says this, he will go before him. Now, who's the him here? Well, Jesus hasn't been mentioned. When we think of John the Baptist, we often think of he's going to prepare the way for Jesus. He's going before Jesus. And that's true. But Jesus is not mentioned here by the angel at all. So when the when the angel here says he will go before him, given that he's just been talking about the Lord their God, what the angel is saying here is that John will go before God. So here we have a subtle hint that Jesus himself is God. That's an interesting connection, isn't it? He will go before God, meaning Jesus. He will turn the hearts of fathers towards their children. This is an interesting phrase. So if you look at Malachi chapter 3 and chapter 4, there's some interesting prophecies in the Old Testament book of Malachi which predict that one day Elijah will return before the coming of the kingdom. And particularly Malachi chapter 3 verse 23 says this, I am sending you Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their sons. And so in the context there, Malachi predicts that before the day of the Lord, a messenger like Elijah would appear and he's going to preach repentance. He's going to restore the tribes of Israel and he's going to heal broken families. So uh, Malachi, inspired by the Holy Spirit, foresees that one day this Elijah-like figure 
will do all these things. And that's brought out more in Sirach chapter 48 as well. Here, what does the angel say about John? The angel says he will turn the hearts of fathers towards their children. So Gabriel here confirms that John is the fulfillment of these prophecies in Malachi about Elijah's return. This is the fulfillment of the predicted return of Elijah. To this day, the Jews are still expecting Elijah to return. As Christians, we believe that he literally did return in the person of John the Baptist. And in fact, Jesus specifically says that later, that John the Baptist is the Elijah that was predicted to return. As a result of John's ministry, many many sinful men would repent. Now, that's literally what the word turn means. Sinful men would repent and they would begin to follow the teachings of God in their lives and their families. So John the Baptist's ministry did bring about much repentance and many people turning to God. Jesus later discusses the importance of John the Baptist and he specifically focuses on how John the Baptist was successful in bringing people to repentance. The angel continues, he says, he will turn the disobedient back to the wisdom that the virtuous have. It's not a very good translation there. What it actually says is he will turn the disobedient back to the wisdom of the just. What's the wisdom of the just? It basically means obeying the law and wisdom of God. And so here the angel predicts that many people who are disobeying God would return to obeying God and the law as a result of hearing John preaching. It's quite a remarkable power that John the Baptist has. The angel says he will prepare the Lord a people fit for him. Or you can translate that, he will make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That's the whole point of John's ministry. John's ministry is not to promote himself. John's ministry, it's a, it's a necessary preparation for the next stage of salvation history, which is the coming of the Lord himself in the person of Jesus. So even here we see that God's plan Even before Jesus is born, God's plan is for John the Baptist to play the role of preparing people for the Messiah. John the Baptist is actually an incredibly important person in salvation history and in the Gospels. If John the Baptist didn't do his ministry, probably Jesus' ministry would have never gotten off the ground. And so we should spend more time thinking about and reflecting on the work of John the Baptist. Verse 18, Zechariah said to the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is getting on in years. So here, although Zechariah is a holy man, he doubts whether it's true. He doubts whether it is true that his wife can be pregnant. Now, he doesn't seem to think it's impossible. He just isn't convinced that it's going to happen. He's doubting. This is similar to Abraham's doubt in Genesis 17, when he's told the same thing about his wife conceiving. Abraham basically says, she's too old, it can't happen. So Zechariah probably should have known that it's possible because if he knows his Old Testament, which he does, he should have remembered that God did exactly this for Abraham and his wife and for many others in the Old Testament. But here, for whatever reason, he doubts. He doubts whether it really can happen to him. So the angel replies, I am Gabriel who stands in God's presence. So up to now, we didn't know the identity of this angel of the Lord. In fact, the text here says the angel of the Lord. And here, the angel says, I am Gabriel, who stands in God's presence. Here we have a very interesting insight about how angels work, or at least this angel, Gabriel, stands in God's presence. This language of standing in God's presence, it could be a reference to Tobit chapter 12, verse 15, 
where it says that seven angels minister in the presence of God. Now, that could be symbolic, but some scholars have taken it to mean that there really is seven and only seven angels who minister in the presence of God, and they're called archangels. And this is later highlighted in Revelation chapter 8, verse 2. So, in any case, we have here Gabriel, who is one of the angels who stands in God's presence. And the word Gabriel means God is mighty. Gabriel has actually appeared before in the Bible. He has appeared in the book of Daniel, and there he appeared to Daniel in chapter 8 and 9 of the book of Daniel with a message about the coming Messiah. So, way back in about 600 BC, Gabriel appears to Daniel and he predicts the exact timing of when the Messiah is going to arrive. It's quite a fascinating text. If you look at Daniel chapter 9, the angel lays out basically a specific date or a specific period of when the Messiah is going to arrive in relation to the rest of Israel's history between Daniel and the Gospels. So Gabriel does not show up for the first time here in Luke. He's already showed up in the book of Daniel. And there he was delivering a message about the Messiah. And what's he doing here? He's basically delivering a similar message. He's telling Zechariah that his son is going to prepare the way for the Lord, prepare the way for the Messiah. So some scholars would say that um, angels have specific missions. And if you think about it, the archangel Michael, his specific mission is to defend Israel. He's like the guardian angel of Israel. Gabriel's mission, whenever he appears, he always seems to be doing something in relation to giving people information about the Messiah. So that's interesting. And of course, Gabriel is going to show up again later in Luke chapter 1 to appear to Mary. And what does he do there? He announces the arrival of the Messiah. And here's what he says. He says, I have been sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. This seems to be the answer to Zechariah's question. Remember, Zechariah said to him, how can I be sure of this? Well, here's the angel's answer. I have been sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. So, The answer the angel gives is basically, I'm Gabriel. The fact that I'm here with this message should have been enough for you. And notice that Gabriel specifically uses the word good news. I have come to bring you this good news. The word there is evangelizo in Greek. Throughout the Gospels, whenever the good news is preached, whenever the gospel is preached, the appropriate response is to believe it. But Zechariah does not believe the good news here. Verse 20 Gabriel says, listen, since you have not believed my words, which will come true at their appointed time. So here we learn that John the Baptist is going to be born and it's going to be at a predetermined time. You'll be silenced and have no power of speech until this has happened. So here God deals out a temporary punishment on Zechariah for his unbelief. You'll be silenced and have no power of speech until this has happened. So until John the Baptist is born... Zechariah will not be able to speak. This appears to be kind of a a remedial punishment. It's supposed to bring Zechariah to a greater understanding of what's going on. God imposes silence on him to reflect on all the events as they take place. Verse 21. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and were surprised that he stayed in the sanctuary for so long. So the people are still waiting outside the holy place and they're wondering why he hasn't come out yet. When he came out, he could not speak to them, and they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple. So since Zechariah is now dumb, he can't speak, well then he can't bless the people either. So here we have a group of faithful Jews who are outside the holy place, 
And they see that Zechariah can't speak to them, so they perceive that he's seen a vision in the temple. So these are faithful Jews who believe that miraculous things like visions can actually occur in the temple. In fact, the temple itself was carved with angels. They believed it was sort of a a place where heaven and earth met. In fact, priests themselves were seen as messengers of God on earth, much like how angels are the messengers of God in heaven. So this is a group of people who believe that Zechariah has seen something in the holy place. But he could only make signs to them, and he remained dumb. So Zechariah can't speak to the crowd. He has to use sign language of some sort to communicate to them. Verse 23, when his time of service came to an end, he returned home. Notice that Zechariah didn't stop his service early. Even though he was struck dumb, he continued with his service until it came to an end. That reveals that Zechariah does have a deep, true faith. Even though he faltered here when he doubted the angel's news, he still continues his service. He's a faithful Jew. Verse 24, sometime later, that's what our lectionary translation says, Other translations have this as after these days. We don't know how many days, so this could have been quite a long time. It says his wife Elizabeth conceived. So at some point, after Zechariah receives the news, uh, Elizabeth conceives, but we don't know exactly when. And then it says for five months, she kept to herself, or more literally, she hid herself. Scholars are not sure what this means exactly. Why is she hiding herself? Maybe she wants to be sure that she's pregnant. Uh, Maybe she's afraid of losing the baby in the first five months and she doesn't want to tell people unless she gets to the five-month mark. There's all sorts of different theories here. Uh, But apparently she doesn't have a whole lot of visitors in these first five months until Mary comes in the sixth month. But this is what Elizabeth says when she finds out that she's pregnant. The Lord has done this for me, she said. So Elizabeth interprets her pregnancy as an act of God's goodness to her much like many women in the Old Testament. And here she says, Now that it has pleased him to take away the humiliation I suffered among men. So Elizabeth glorifies God. She knows that she's no longer barren, and she knows that she's no longer going to be looked down upon society. The Lord has done this for me. He will take away the humiliation I have suffered among men. This is the same as what Rachel says in Genesis 30 verse 23, when Rachel conceives after being barren for many years. So Elizabeth here is kind of presented as this new Rachel or the fulfillment of many women in the Old Testament who are barren. So that's the end of today's long text. I hope you learned something new. Now, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they both reappear later in the chapter and we'll look at their stories in the coming days as we go on. The next section, verses 26 to 38, is the Annunciation. That's when the angel Gabriel appears to Mary That's read all sorts of times in the liturgical year, so it's probably one of the most well-known readings, and we'll look at that in tomorrow's episode. Let's now turn to the Catechism to see what we can learn from uh, from this story of the angel appearing to Zechariah. There's all sorts of really interesting places in the Catechism where it gets discussed. We'll just talk about a couple of them. So paragraph 332 talks about uh, Christ's role with the angels, and also paragraph 717 and 718 They talk about John's role as the final fulfillment of Elijah, and we'll include these in the show notes as well. So whatever platform you're listening on, you should just be able to click on uh, the episode that's currently playing, and it should bring up the entire episode description. And in that description is all these catechism references that we're talking about. 
Uh, There's also some interesting references about symbols of the Holy Spirit, and it talks about how Elijah himself was uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Let's look at paragraph 2684. This is about the cloud of witnesses. In the communion of saints, many and varied spiritualities have been developed throughout the history of the churches. The personal charism of some witnesses to God's love for men has been handed on, like the spirit of Elijah to Elisha and John the Baptist, so that their followers may have a share in this spirit. This is a really interesting Catholic teaching that not many people know. It's one of the most interesting paragraphs in the Catechism. It says, The personal charism of some witnesses to God's love for men has been handed on, like the spirit of Elijah to Elisha and John the Baptist. So the teaching here is that just as Elijah's spirit passed eventually to John the Baptist, there have been other times in church history when people's personal charism, their personal spiritual power, has been passed on to other people so that their followers may have a share in this spirit. It's a really interesting aspect of Catholic theology that um, particularly holy men and holy women, their individual charism and their spirit can be passed on to their followers. Paragraph 1070, this is in the section about what does the word liturgy mean. It says, In the New Testament, the word liturgy refers not only to the celebration of divine worship, but also to the proclamation of the gospel and to active charity. So that's interesting. The word liturgy has multiple uses uh, in theology, and one of those uses is the proclamation of the gospel, which is what we see the angel doing to Zechariah today. Thanks for listening to today's longer episode. Please share this around with other people and we'll continue to look at Luke chapter one in the coming days.